The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good to be together and to be in God's Word this morning. And what we're going to do last week, this week, and next week, we're going to take a pause from our first Peter series in order to address and help us process some of the events that have taken place in the Twin Cities and around our nation this week and last week. So this morning we are looking at Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Would you join me as we now go to the Lord in prayer? Father in heaven, leaning on the promise that all scripture is breathed out by you, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that all of your people may be complete, equipped for every good work. We come now and ask that you would equip us for every good work. Come now in the power of your spirit and use your word to train us up in righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning's sermon title is Where to Look When Suffering is Great. Where do we look when suffering or crisis is great? And I don't need to remind you of the current events because we're collectively living through them. I used to live down at 26th and Blaisdell, and we drove by, and we went by Global Market. And I know many of you either used to live down there or have gone down there And you've seen the destruction. You've seen the charred remains of buildings. And in the midst of it all, I imagine that many of us are asking questions, wondering. We feel powerless and confused. What do we do? What do we do against the unseen virus that is ravaging our lives and families and jobs, particularly low-income wage earners, companies, our economy as a whole, and especially our elderly among us? What do I do as I watch the video of the terrible and horrific killing of George Floyd? What do I do as I see our twin cities descend into chaos and burning and looting and destruction? What do I do as I hear the cries for help and see the grief and laments of our African-American brothers and sisters and others, and ethnic minorities in our church and in our communities? What do I do as I watch our police, some of whom are our church members, seek to do a very difficult and dangerous job in this climate? Where do we look when suffering is great? And the answer this morning comes in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 20. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. When nothing else makes sense and we feel powerless and confused, we can keep our eyes on the Savior. One of the phrases I've been coming back to again and again has been, in unprecedented times, we have an unparalleled Savior. And this is all the more true in these days now. We look to God. God's people throughout every age, whether it be wars or pandemics or destruction or widespread persecution or natural disasters, have been able to say, we don't know what to do, God, but we're keeping our eyes on you. And so my aim this morning is that in the midst of all 
the turmoil that we see in the world and we feel in our hearts. That we don't recoil, we don't retreat, we don't hide, we don't shut our eyes and cover our ears to all the tragedies around us. We don't harden our hearts, but we take it all in and then we take it to the one who can carry our burdens, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who can mend our hearts and strengthen our hands and empower us with deeds of love in the midst of a broken world. So my plan is to walk through this passage and help us see the context of Jehoshaphat's prayer and then to draw out six truths from Jehoshaphat's prayer, mainly from verses 5 through 12. So real briefly for a little bit of context, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he is generally described in scripture as a good king. He was a good, upright, upstanding king. Second Chronicles 17 says this, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father, David. He didn't do what all the bad kings did, but was like David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. So he was a good king. And not only that, it says his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And then 2 Chronicles 17.10 says, The fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the land that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. This little detail is really important. God has given Jehoshaphat peace up to this point. But Jehoshaphat, now we come to chapter 20, and all of a sudden we see these nations rising up to attack Judah. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites. They came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Chapter 20, verse 1. A great multitude is coming against you from Edom. So what's going on? What transpired from chapter 17 to 20, where God was giving him protection and peace, to all of a sudden all of the enemies are coming to rise up against Judah? Well, Jehoshaphat had disobeyed God. He had actually made an alliance with King Ahab, and he shouldn't have done that. And so God comes in chapter 19 and says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. So these enemies rising up against Judah are a punishment from God. It's within his sovereign hand. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. But next we see Jehoshaphat's response. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So Jehoshaphat, first thing, doesn't say, let's gather all the military advisors. Let's get our strategic plan up and running. Maybe we can make a different alliance so that we can withstand this attack. No, first thing, he's afraid. And then he says, let's go to God. In fearful situations, set your gaze on God. In confusing times, cry out to the Creator. In the face of danger, don't deviate from our great Deliverer. This is a reminder for us this morning. In the midst of feeling powerless and confused, we have a Savior who knows all things, sees all things, is for us, and is working all things together for good. Jehoshaphat also calls for a fast. See that in verse 3. He calls for a corporate response to the dire situation. 
This situation not only requires individual action, but a corporate response, calling urgently for everyone to help. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment. We experienced one of these as a staff when we said, we're reopening, but only 250 can come in. And it was an all-hands-on-deck moment where I said, I need everyone's help. Someone needs to run check-in. I know it's not your job, but we all need to do our part. And here we see Jehoshaphat doing the same. And in the midst of all the confusion and conflicting messages that we see in the world from the left and from the right, it's important for Christians, those who follow Jesus, to have a corporate response, not shaped by those on the left or by the right, but it's to say we are people who are shaped by this book. We have a different set of marching orders. We follow Jesus in the midst of it all. So it's important for us to be clear, like Jason said last week, that we are robustly pro-life. We are for the unborn. We abhor the evil of abortion. But we believe that all people of every color and shade are made in God's image. We abhor ethnic hatred or hatred based on the shade of anyone's skin. We believe that the elderly and the infirm are not burdens to our society. We abhor the evil of euthanasia and assisted physician-assisted suicide. And we believe that children and adults with Down syndrome and autism and hydrocephalus or any other developmental disability are valuable members of our society. We abhor the evil of killing disabled babies before they exit the womb or after. We believe that orphans and foster children should have loving and caring homes. We will continue to champion adoption and foster care and seek to support those who do. And we believe that refugees and immigrants and those seeking asylum are not less worthy of respect, not less human, not less valuable to God. We believe that we have opportunity to love our neighbors and to call our congressmen and women to enact wise and compassionate policies. And we believe all of these things because each and every person has a soul that will last forever made in the image of God. And I'm glad that I'm at a church where these truths are loved deeply because we know and love God. That was a little bit of an aside, but now we turn to Jehoshaphat's prayer. Look with me at verse 5, and we have six truths that I want to draw out for us. Six truths in Jehoshaphat's prayer. The first is that we are to pray by recalling God's sovereign power. We are to pray by recalling God's sovereign power. Look with me at verse 6. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. First thing that Jehoshaphat does is he recalls who God is. He is God in heaven. You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. When all hell seems to be breaking loose, we're to remember one thing we learned in kindergarten. He has the whole world in his hands. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's ruling and reigning. Nothing is outside of his control. Not three armies rising up against Judah and not the events of the twin cities or around the world. And some of us need that truth 
to go deep this morning. You need that reminder. God is not asleep at the wheel. God is not powerless against the chaos. He is not unknowing or absent, but he's massively at work in our world. And we don't know all that he will do, but we can pray. We can pray recalling his sovereign power. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1, 11. Or how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Romans eleven thirty three. So we can pray recalling God's sovereign power. Second, pray by recalling God's past power. In verse 7, pray by recalling God's past power. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So not only does Jehoshaphat say, you're the God in the heavens, you made everything, but he says, we remember, you are the one who drove out all of these inhabitants to give us this promised land. When Moses and Joshua were coming in, it was you who were faithful. You have been faithful so far, don't let us down now. And very similarly, we can say, Lord, you've been faithful, don't let us down now. Notice how he says at the end of that, forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. That's a curious phrase, Abraham, your friend. That's mentioned three places. One other place is James 2.23, I think referring back to this passage. The other place, the only other place, is Isaiah 41.8. And in the context of that, it's, he calls Abraham, God calls Abraham a friend, and this is within the context of assurance. Many of us know Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so in the same way that God has been faithful from the very beginning all the way back to Abraham, his friend, he is our friend now and he has been faithful all the way to Jehoshaphat and from all the way to Jehoshaphat to Jesus and from Jesus until the end of the age. God is faithful. God has been faithful. To recall God's friendship with Abraham is to recall God's faithful deliverance in every step of human history all the way back and we can look all the way forward to present day. Why? Because we're the friends of Jesus. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants. This is Jesus speaking this. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. We don't even hardly know how to fathom that reality. That Jesus calls us his friend. And that's just not this way of casually saying, yeah, I'm friends with him. You know, we had a few conversations, but he's saying, because Jesus is on our side, he will be faithful. He's been faithful for eternity past. He will be faithful to eternity present. And right now, we can pray by recalling his past promises. Number three, we can pray by recalling God's present promises. So past promises number two, present promises number three. Look with me at verses eight and nine. 
And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. So what is Solomon referring, or what is, what, sorry, what is Jehoshaphat, I, I told you the answer. What is Jehoshaphat referring to there? Well, he's referring back to Solomon's prayer when the temple was built in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. In that prayer, Solomon had just be finished building the temple, and he prays this prayer, dedicating it to the Lord. And in that, verse 9 Sort of a loose quote of what he prayed there. If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, famine, we will stand before this house. We're going to come here. We're going to cry out to you, God. And will you answer and hear us and forgive us and heal us? And God says, yes. Because later, Second Chronicles 7, God hears Solomon's prayer and he says this, I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And if my people were called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So God has given them a promise that when they come, he will hear their cries, forgive and save. And in a world bereft of any good news right now, we can pray recalling God's present promises, not only to the nation of Israel, not only to Jehoshaphat, but we can recall God's promises to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't imagine that there's any looters here this morning, but if we're looters or rioters or arsonists or anarchists or serial adulterers or murderers or one who harbors hatred against their neighbor or is hardened to the plight of the oppressed and poor, forgiveness of sins is available to all who cry out to God. He will forgive and heal and save. That is good news. And it's good news that the world needs to hear. I'm not saying that protests aren't important, but it ultimately doesn't deal with the heart issues that we need dealt with. And it begins with us, and then we need to be able to share that good news with love and winsomeness to a world that will perish without Christ. The only hope for sinners is the cross of Christ. While our society grapples with systemic injustices or ingrained prejudices or conditioned biases, the kingdom of God shows no prejudice, has no bias, and does not discriminate. Whether you're the religious Pharisee or the unrighteous tax collector, all can come and find forgiveness and hope at the foot of the cross. And that is good news for us this morning. Whatever your experience, whatever your sin tendencies, whatever your way of thinking, we have hope because Christ Christ grants us forgiveness, and he grants it to all those who will come. Amen? Number four, pray by pleading for God's present help. So the first three were recalling sovereign power, past power, present power, present help. Now pray by pleading for God's present help. 
Look with me at verse 10. And now behold, the men of Amnon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? So now they come and they plead for God's present help. These very peoples... These three armies that have come are the very ones that God would not let Israel drive out. They were told very specifically, as you go into the land, don't go to them. I'm letting them stay. And at the time, if you were Joshua or any of the Israelites, you're thinking, what? These are pagan peoples. And yet, it shows us a little bit that God is doing a million things that we do not yet know or understand or see. And yet, God comes through. God delivers. He executes judgment. And they plead for God's present help in the midst of a great global trial, a time of testing and winnowing. I pray that we would be those who are praying and pleading for God's help. If nothing else is accomplished, may we grow in dependence and prayer in this season. If we learn, well, I hope we learn many things from the events here in the Twin Cities, but one of the things we ought to learn is that we ought to grow in our desperate recognition that we need God to come. We need his power to be seen. We need the gospel to go forth to transform hearts and minds on every side of every color. We need more of God. We are committed to spreading a passion for the supremacy of God, and we need more of that, not less of it, here in the Twin Cities and around the world. We can plead for God's help because God sees the whole picture. It's a reminder that God is never insufficient or faulty, but rather he's unfolding a greater plan. So number four is plead for God's present help. Number five, pray by confessing our dependence on God. Second half of verse 12. Pray by confessing our dependence on God. It says, For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Notice Jehoshaphat's humility to recognize his complete dependence on God. He has an army. He has a nation. He could make alliances. But he recognizes we're powerless if you don't come through, God. He recognizes that he ultimately needs God to come through. And I think that's one thing that we can learn this morning. If we're truly humble, we will see our need for God. That we are truly powerless. And we will pray. I worry that prayerlessness in the church reveals the sickness of self-sufficiency in our lives and in my life, or arrogance or pride. Do we believe that we can accomplish more without praying to God? Or perhaps we believe in prayer, we know it's important, just like we know exercise is important, but we don't often engage in it. Or perhaps our theological understanding of prayer is orthodox and right, and yet functionally our prayer lives are anemic. I pray that in the midst of this, we would pray. The pandemic and the unrest in our city has torn off the shallow veneer that everything's all right, and that life can just be lived without 
total and complete dependence upon God in prayer. It's torn that completely off. And we recognize afresh that as God's people, we need to pray. We need to pray, oh God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't know how to fix all the problems that we see in our society and in our culture and in our own hearts even. We don't know how to rid ourselves of our prejudices or sickness or whatever it may be, and yet God can do it. He can do it this morning. And so we have the privilege, we have the glorious privilege of crying out for God's help, crying out for the lost in our neighborhoods and among the nations. Let the current trials spur us on to fresh recognition of our dependence on God and that we would pray with fresh vigor, renewed zeal, and fresh vision. Number six, pray keeping your eyes on God. Pray keeping your eyes on God. And we see that in the last sentence of verse 12. We do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. We see from Jehoshaphat's prayer when after everything is all said and done, what he needs at the end of the day is more of Jesus, more of God, a greater clarity, a greater vision of who God is, what he's done, and how he's at work in the world. He may not know what to do, and God doesn't necessarily even reveal it in that moment, and yet he ultimately points to God as his lasting hope. Engage, with this, engage in this thought exercise with me. What if the second half of 2020 is worse than the first half? I laughed out loud when I thought about that. It's hard to even fathom, and it's heartbreaking to think. And yet, even in the midst, even if the second half is worse than the first half, we're going to be okay because we can set our eyes on God. We may not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I'd like to spend... Uh, another 30 minutes going through the rest of Second Chronicles 20 because it's such an amazing story of God's deliverance. The singers come out and Judah does not even lift a finger. Not a single bow is shot and God devours the armies. They collect the spoils for three days. It's really an incredible story, but I won't, well, I already spoiled it for you. You know how it ends, but let me commend it to you and, and read it later today or this week. But it's an amazing picture of God's deliverance And God lets Judah sing over their enemies. There's a singing that's central in this. The people sing, the the choir goes before the army, and there's this amazing deliverance where the three armies end up attacking one another and they're destroyed, and God delivers them. But we don't have time to get into all of that. But what I want to do is, how do we apply this passage this morning Where do we look when suffering is great? We've talked quite a bit about this already, but I want to go a little bit deeper. Where do we look when we're in the midst of great calamity? We may not know what to do, but our eyes are on Jesus. That's what I want us to leave with today. That in the midst of all that is taking place, in the midst of all the learning that you might personally be doing, or the serving, or the loving, or the grieving, or the lamenting, that we would not, for a moment, take our eyes off of Jesus. We have to read all of the news, all of the current events, all that is around us through the lens of his book. 
We have to be people shaped by his word. And yes, it it calls us to different things that we may not have seen before, different levels of learning, and yet we need to do it with our eyes on Jesus. We can't take our eyes off the North Star because then we'll be led astray. We can look to God by recalling his power, past and present, his promises, pleading for his help, confessing our dependence, but we have something even better not just God in general, we can look at the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Pastor Dave is preaching downtown this morning. Hebrews 12, we can look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the one who is the author and perfecter. He will bring us all the way through, and he's seated at the hand of the Father right now. He is trustworthy and true as we run the race of faith. We can look to the one who will never disappoint. And so we can look to Jesus, praying for his comfort and peace for George Ford's family, and friends. We can look to Jesus asking for repentance and remorse for police officers involved and for justice to be done. We can look to Jesus pleading for peace and no more riots and no more deaths and no more burnings and no more destruction of lives and livelihood. We can look to Jesus to wash away our own guilt if we have been indifferent and willfully ignorant of injustice against men and women, born and unborn, poor and exploited, refugees and immigrants, widows and widowers, and yes, those in our black and brown communities of color. We can look to Jesus to help us learn more about our nation's history rather than withdraw and ignore historical realities that still plague our nation today. We can look to Jesus to help move us forward in love and good works, not out of fear and duty and guilt and shame, but we can move forward out of compassion and Christ-likeness because we know the God who made all things. We can look to Jesus for those ethnic minorities among us to find our ultimate lasting identity in Christ, not in how we're portrayed in culture or Hollywood or anywhere else, but that we are in Jesus. And we can look to Jesus for parents and children of transracial adoptions to root us in our identity as adoptive children of the Most High King, beloved and of infinite worth. We can look to Jesus as we see racial and ethnic hostilities, knowing that he has once for all broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility so that he might create in himself one new man, making peace by the blood of the cross. We love that verse. We treasure that verse because Jesus has accomplished it, and now we get to live it out in our communities and in our lives. We can look to Jesus to mend the brokenness in our society and in our souls. We can look to Jesus praying for bad cops of every color and ethnicity to repent of the sinful use of lethal power and be reconciled to God. And we can pray, we can look to Jesus praying for his empowering strength for all the good police of every color and ethnicity to stand up for what is right and righteous in God's eyes. We can look to Jesus praying for protesters of every color to not only protest the misuse of power, but to recognize that we will all have to stand to give an account on that final day. And we should be reconciled to God. 
We can look to Jesus praying for looters of every color to repent, confess, and be reconciled to God before the day of judgment. And we tremble knowing that every deed, every thought, whether you're a looter or a religious Pharisee, it will all be exposed on that day. And we need God. We need the forgiveness that can only be found at the cross. And we can look to Jesus confessing our own thoughts or acts of sinful partiality or sinful indifference to the suffering of brothers and sisters made in God's image. And we can look to Jesus as we continue to live as Christ has called us to live in this world, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, sharing this good news and doing good to all. We have our marching orders. Nothing's changed, though much has changed in these last two weeks. And all the more, as God's people, we need to set our eyes on Jesus and let him, from his word, move us towards greater love, compassion, learning, and action. Our lasting hope is in this ultimate and final deliverance that Jesus has brought. We do not have just a temporary reprieve from a foreign enemy like Jehoshaphat, but we have a lasting, ultimate salvation, a greater deliverance, a greater rescue that Jesus Christ has worked so that in him we have hope and everlasting life. Christ has made a way for sinners of every stripe, every color, to find forgiveness and reconciliation at the foot of the cross. All those who come to this fountain find cleansing. And so, brothers and sisters, as we go from here, if we do not know what to do, we're going to be okay because our eyes are on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not take our eyes off of him as we go from here, but let's keep our eyes set on Christ as we continue to live as his people in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, let these truths sink deep into our souls so that we would not take our eyes off of you. We thank you that you are faithful, steadfast, sufficient. And so we look to you, we trust you, we love you. And so as we keep our eyes set on you, empower our hands, motivate our feet, transform our hearts so that we would increasingly look more and more like Jesus. We pray that this world would see the saltiness and the brightness of your people in these days. We pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.